Well, there was a high school track and field coach, and he caught one of his athletes showing off in between classes. See, the high jump bar was set at five feet, six inches. And one of the boys was using the bar to show the girls just how high he could jump. He was showing off. And they were ooing and aahing. They were so impressed. They couldn't believe that he could jump over a bar that was just a little bit taller than they were. Well, the coach walked over to the scene and said, Hey, Johnny, that's great that you would show these girls what the woman's standard for the high jump is. Um, but, you know, I, I think you should change it. You should move the bar up to seven feet, six inches and show her or show them where the men compete. S- another two feet higher. Now, seven and a half feet, by the way, is close to the national record for high school high jump. So Johnny and the coach both knew there was no way he could jump over that bar. He would fall short. Well, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us a similar lesson, except the stakes are way higher. He raises the bar, not for athletic competition, but He raises the bar for admission into heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, what the scribes and the Pharisees, really, they were the religious elite of that day. What they were doing is they were lowering the bar of God's standard. They lowered the bar to a level that they could clear and they could show off. They were following the letter of God's law, but they forsook the heart of the law. Even in some cases, they were stretching the letters to make it mean and say what they wanted it to say. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to this earth and He directly confronts their false system. Jesus takes the bar back up to God's standard and explicitly shows them just how far they fall short. And friends, it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes that fall short. You and I fall short of God's standard. This sermon exposes the sin in our hearts as well. We're always tempted to make excuses for sin, to belittle it, or to lower the bar of God's standard, to bend it, to appear godly but deny the power of it. This sermon exposes your heart failure. You're jumping as high as you can, but friend, let me tell you, you fall short. You fall short. What we need to do when we hear these truths and when the sin in our heart is exposed is we need to repent of it. We need to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Jesus Christ is not only the law enforcer, but He's the law fulfiller. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He sets the bar high and He meets God's standard. And so what this sermon does is it not only leaves us broken 
and helpless, but it points us to righteousness and hope. And it's not righteousness found in ourselves. It's not more good that we can do. It's found in Jesus Christ, the person preaching this sermon. He's pointing back to Himself. And so when we see sin exposed in the sermons, we, we repent from it, we turn and we trust in Jesus Christ alone to save us. And then we follow in Jesus' footsteps. We follow the law that He provides for us from a transformed heart and with joy and with gratitude. Because we serve a new King. The King of Kings. Jesus Christ. And these are characteristics of His kingdom citizens. So, you may think that you're innocent. You say, Morgan, I'm innocent. Well, at least by the letter of the law. I've not committed adultery. Jesus says, no, you're guilty of lust from the heart. You're guilty of the same thing. You may think you're innocent by the letter of the law. I have not committed murder. But Jesus declares you guilty for your anger. You may think, well, I'm clear for divorce. At least by the letter of the law. And Jesus declared these people guilty for producing more adultery in their divorce. And now in verses 33-37, to you may think to yourself that you're clear, you're innocent of swearing falsely. Maybe because you just don't know what swearing falsely means. But we'll explain that. You may think, no, I'm innocent. And Jesus exposes the falsehood in our hearts and that comes out of our mouths this morning. So why don't you look down at the text again. Let me read the first verse. Point number one in your outline, I hope that you grabbed one this morning, is the law for oaths. The law for oaths. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now remember Jesus' pattern in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. What is Jesus doing? Well, He's quoting Old Testament, Old Covenant law. And in so doing, He's pointing out the misinterpretation of the Pharisees. They are misinterpreting, misinterpreting God's commands from the Old Testament. And in this case, He quotes a section of the law that deals with swearing falsely or oaths. So what does it mean to swear falsely? Well, to swear falsely is failing to do what was promised by oath. Failing to do what was promised by oath. In short, it's failing to keep your word. Failing to keep your word. Are you guilty of failing to keep your word? Now, what are oaths? What's the significance of attaching that to an oath? Well, to take an oath is to attach your word to a higher entity, an entity outside of yourself, to greater validate your statement. For example, to say, I'll do it, is one thing. But when someone says, I swear on my mother's grave that I'll do it, well, that raises the stakes, takes your statement to a higher Level, you're trying to further validate your promise. Or when someone says something like, I swear to God. Or 
with a hand on their Bible, they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. They're binding their word to God and His word. And the expectation then that follows is that they'll tell the truth. Or that they will not lie. Or that the promise they're making will be brought to fruition. They shouldn't lie. They shouldn't perjure themselves, which is a courtroom term. Because they're invoking the very presence of holy God in His holy word as a testimony. A witness to their claims. Unfortunately, you and I both know that today, and even back in the first century, oaths are taken lightly. Promises are easily broken. Perjury, lies, falsehood abounds in society today. I mean, it isn't being exposed for its folly as we see two celebrities in the courtroom right now battling it out and lying to one another. Ridiculous. What does God say about oaths and promises in the Old Testament? What does God say about it? What does He say about binding your word to Him or to something else? Jesus, in this verse, quotes a couple of passages. The first is Leviticus 19, verse 12. This section of the law. Leviticus 19.12, I have it on the screen. Look at what it says. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. You know, God didn't necessarily uh, forbid swearing by His name. He didn't necessarily endorse you to swear by His name. What does he explicitly forbid in this passage? He says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. Don't attach a falsehood, a lie, or a promise that you cannot keep to my name. In other words, be very careful that the words that you attach to me are truthful and that you keep your promises. Don't drag my name through the mud of your lies and your broken word. Don't do it. There are other Old Testament texts that really emphasize this truth. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Finally, Ecclesiastes 5.4, Solomon's wisdom. Look at what he says. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And it is explicitly clear in the Old Testament law 
that breaking your word before God or telling a lie and attaching it to God, whether it's an intentional lie or if it's just unintentional lack of follow-through, we'll say. You've sinned. And God says you're a fool. You've been there. We all have. I'll send you the money tomorrow, you say. Tomorrow comes and goes. No money sent. You say, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot. I get paid on Friday. So I swear on my mother's grave, I'll get it to you next week. Next week comes and goes. No money is sent. Oh my goodness, I am so sorry. I swear to who? God. That I meant to send it, but I totally forgot. I'll get it to you tomorrow. And it goes on and on and on. The question is, when did you sin? When did you sin? After you broke the first word? Or after swearing on your mother's grave and breaking that? Or, typically we think, well, you sinned when you swore to God and you didn't fulfill your word. We think about swearing falsely and we immediately attach it to swearing falsely to God's name. And if, as long as I didn't invoke the presence of God, then it's less severe or it's okay to promise by other things and not fulfill the promise. We're tempted to think that way. And this is exactly how the Pharisees thought. The Pharisees thought, well, it's, it's very clear in the law. Swearing falsely by God's name is a sin. So let's, his, let's avoid His name entirely. Let's leave God out of this and let's just swear by heaven. Let's swear by the earth. Let's swear by the temple, Jerusalem, the altar. Or let's swear even by the money on the altar. Let's swear by our own heads and we can be clear of guilt. If we don't meet those promises, it's less severe, it's not as bad, and, and we're still innocent. We could still be okay. There was an entire section of the Mishnah, which is this rabbionic writing, this law that the rabbis produced, extra-biblical, this entire section devoted to different tiers of oaths that you can make. Well, if you swear by heaven, that's a little bit more severe than if you swear by the temple. Or if you swear by the temple or Jerusalem, that's more important and severe than swearing by, let's say, the money on the altar. They had developed their own extra law to essentially lower the bar and be able to say, look at us. We're keeping God's law to the letter. Of course, that is far from what God is getting at in the Old Testament. Don't, don't we see that? The heart of God's law. The heart of God's law points to you and I and says this, keep your word. Keep your word. Don't break your word. And that's what Jesus exposes directly in verses 34 to 36. Point number two, do not attach falsehood to God's property. Don't attach falsehood to God's property. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let me first say that I, along with other commentators, I I don't believe Jesus is universally forbidding oaths here. I think in certain circumstances, serious ones particularly, like in a court of law, in a marriage ceremony when vows are made, or doctors with the Hippocratic Oath, I think they're appropriate and helpful to bring some sobriety and some seriousness to the commitments that you're about to make. Even God makes oaths in the Scripture. He binds Himself, but He doesn't bind Himself to earthly things because in Hebrews it says there's nothing greater than God. So He binds His oaths to Himself. Jesus commands the people of Israel in the Old Testament to fulfill their oaths that they had made. So I don't think Jesus is universally forbidding all oaths here. I think He is more specifically, forbidding casual oaths. Oaths that are taken less seriously and bound to what they think are less important things. And Jesus directly confronts that. Don't take an oath by heaven, or by the earth, or by Jerusalem, or by your own head. Jesus lists four dominions here. Did you see that? Four dominions that God owns, not us. It's God's property. Heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and even your own head. It's all God's. These were just a few of the examples that O's would, of O's that people would take in this time. You know, the Pharisees and scribes would swear by heaven again, Jerusalem, the temple, even the, the money on the altar. Jesus confronts that in Matthew 23. Jesus shows in this section that Although you're not swearing by God Himself, you're swearing by something He owns. And so, you still profane His name because you're attaching your falsehood to His stuff. Let's look at heaven and earth. They are the Lord's. Isaiah 66.1 makes this clear. Another quotation in Acts 7.49. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. This is God's office. His office space, His office property, His throne room, and His footstool. These are not man's creation. You, You and I have no sovereign power over heaven. We have no sovereign power over the earth. Only power that God bestows and grants to us. We know in Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, in my ceramics class, there was a sign at the top of the door that said this, if you make it, you own it. If you make it, you own it. The ceramics teacher had that up there so that we would take ownership and responsibility of our stuff so that we would not mess around and make ridiculous things. And, And so that also... You will take your art home with you and not leave it as a collection for the ceramics teacher. And so the teacher said, if you make it, you own it. Well, that principle is true with creation. God makes it, He owns it. It's His property. 
Heaven is his throne room, and the earth is his footstool. What about Jerusalem? Verse 35, Jesus says, nope, that's the city of the great king. This is an allusion of Psalm 48. Look at what this psalm says. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion, a reference to Jerusalem. In the far north, the great or the city of the great king. Who's the king of Jerusalem at the time when Jesus preaches this sermon? Who's the king? Well, the Pharisees and scribes might have said, Caesar is king. They might have said, Pilate, he's the governor of this region. They might have said, we're king. The Sanhedrin is king. The ruling council of Jerusalem is king. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The king stands in front of you. The king, as we have seen and studied, is the one preaching this sermon. Jesus the Christ, he's the rightful king. And Jerusalem is his city. It belongs to him. He is going to restore its fortune. He is going to one day come back and sit on the Davidic throne to rule from and over Jerusalem. Jeremiah 33. So don't defame His Jerusalem. It's not yours. It's His. Don't defame His temple or even His altar. None of it is yours. Finally, what about my body? Jesus says, don't even swear or take an oath by your own head. Well, there's something that I own. That's my property, right? My body, my choice is the anthem of today. So I can swear by my own head because it's mine. Jesus' next illustration points points to the folly of that statement. It proves that statement wrong. Look at what Jesus says. Do not take an oath by your own head, verse 36, for you can't make one hair white or black. I have gray hair. I'm not that old. I got my first gray hair when I was 18 years old. And then it has more have sprouted since. I had no control over that. I didn't was somebody think you had a really stressful high school, you know, year or something. No. I had a great time in high school. I was fine. But I got white hair. No control. Who makes the hair on your head white or black? Who takes the sight away from the blind man? Who makes a, a man deaf or mute? Who, who numbers your days? Who determines the place or the hour of your birth? Who determines the place or the hour of your death? Who's sovereign over the sickness that ails us, the pain that cripples us, and the disease that kills us? Is it you? No. See, even your body is His property. Especially for you, believer, your body is called the temple. His temple, where the Spirit dwells. Do not defile His temple. His body, His choice. What's the moral of the story here? What's Jesus getting at? I want you to imagine 
that men break into your home. They rush in with buckets of mud and filth. They quickly assure you, oh, we're not going to touch you. You'll be okay. We're just going to smear this mud on your wife or your husband. We're going to smear this mud on your children. We are going to take this mud and filth and smear it on everything in your home. Would you stand by and let them do it? No. You might come just short of killing them (laughs) for defaming your family, for defaming your property. It's not theirs. They have no right to do that. It is directly offensive to you, even though they do not touch you. Don't you see what Jesus is getting at here? Whether you break your word intentionally or unintentionally, whether you bind it to God or to His property, if you fail, it's sin. And it directly offends Him. You have dragged His name, His people, and His stuff through the mud of your failure. If you've spoken falsely, and we all have, we've all told a lie, haven't we? Even if we haven't attached it to the name of God, or even to heaven, or even to our mother's grave, if you've told a lie, if you've broken your word, you've spoken falsely, And you're guilty before God. You know, we're always tempted to think, really? It's not that big of a deal, is it? Just a little lie? A white lie? A little falsehood? Or you know what? It wasn't that important of a commitment. I didn't need to be there. So I said I'd be there, but it's okay. God gave you that mouth. And He gave it to you to speak the truth. Be faithful to your word. Instead, you and I fail by speaking lies and breaking promises. Do you think it's any better to attach those words to His things? We need to repent. We need to confess the sins of our mouths. We failed. We've spoken falsehood, we've spoken lies, we failed to keep our promises. We need to repent, confess our sin, and turn to Jesus Christ, who came and spoke the truth with love. Truth and grace flowed from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can wash us clean. Only Jesus can give us the righteousness and the transformed heart to even start washing our mouths out and speaking truthfully. We need to trust in Christ. When the sin is exposed, repent of it and cling to Him alone. Here's the basic principle that Jesus gets at for His people. Point number three. Keep your word and keep it simple. Keep your word and keep it simple. Look at verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
yes and no are repeated twice in the original language. So the more literal translation, maybe this, your translation reflects this, it should be, let your yes be yes and your no be no. The, the meaning that Jesus is getting at here is that your word yes should be followed by the action or the reality of yes. Conversely, your word no should confirm the action or the reality of no. No should be no. Yes should be yes. Speak the truth. Honesty and follow-through are assumed by a simple yes or no answer. All you need is a simple yes or no to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All you need is a simple yes or no to keep your word and be faithful to your commitments. And Jesus says anything more than this comes from evil. In some translations, from the evil one, from Satan. Satan would love for you to think that you're validating your statements or devalidating your statements by just attaching it to something. Oh, I can break this promise because it's attached to my dog. Or I'm going to take this promise more seriously and fail because it's attached to heaven or attached to God. What you do is you dig yourself into a bigger hole, don't you? You start attaching all sorts of things to God's word and then you break it. Keep it simple, but keep your word. Proverbs 10.19 says this, great wisdom. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Be careful before you say yes to something or before you say no to something. When somebody asks you a question and they're looking for the truth, be careful before you answer in the affirmative or in the negative to be sure that it's actually true. Be careful with your words. The oaths are really unnecessary for the Christ follower because our sincere heart produces sincere words that follow with sincere actions. That's how it ought to be. This includes questions you answer in a court of law or in a meeting at work or in a conversation with your spouse. This includes every commitment you make at work or in society or even in the church. Yes, following yes. No, following no. Be faithful to your word. Keep, it, keep your word and keep it simple. John MacArthur He makes this interesting statement when he preached this passage. He says this, If everyone in society walked and spoke truthfully for just one day, he said, our society would implode because it has been built on lies and falsehood. He said the whole system, the lies and faults would be exposed and the system would crumble. It would be good but not for those who are walking in darkness and those who have built their platforms on evil and lies. I want to make it more personal for you. I want you to really reflect and evaluate how much of your life 
is built on a lie or on lies. How often do you lie and where does that take you in your life? Would your world fall apart if you were forced to walk and speak the truth for just a day? Would the exposed truth tear apart your family, your marriage, your relationships? Would you lose your job if you told the truth? Would you be penalized by the IRS? Would it affect your membership or your reputation at church if you exposed the truth? Be careful to only speak the truth. Be careful that your yes and your no is tethered to the truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. That your words don't promote or say anything outside of the truth. Because you'll be accountable for those words that are spoken in falsehood. There's another disease of the tongue that this passage exposes, and I see it prevalent in the church today. I wonder if you're infected by this disease. It's called, in summary, it's called unfaithfulness. Or you could say making a commitment verbally or with your signature and not following through on that commitment. In other words, you say, yes, I'll be there, and no, you don't show up. Maybe you told a a brother or sister that you'd help them with something and, and you cancel last minute. Maybe you sign up to serve in a ministry, but you cancel or or bail on your shift because other things come up. Maybe you signed up for a study in a small group and made the commitment, yes, I'll be there, and, and you only showed up maybe once or twice. And of course, A typical pattern in the church is that small groups start with great attendance. Everybody who signs up shows up on the first meeting and gradually the attendance declines. Just making a commitment and not following through. And I've heard all the excuses. Oh, we just got so busy. Oh, we're just really distracted. I'm distracted at work right now. We're distracted at home right now by X, Y, Z. Or this other thing came up and this is so important because, you know, it's part of my job. Or it's a serious family commitment that I I didn't think about when I signed up for the ministry. I've even heard, I forgot to set my alarm. I'm sorry. Now, there's this, for some strange reason, those excuses have been validated in the church. And it's almost permissible to break a commitment here because it doesn't cost you as much. It doesn't cost you your paycheck. It doesn't cost you the really difficult conversation with your family member. So you could come to church and and break commitments here because, oh, the church is full of people that are gracious, merciful, forgiving, loving. Why is that the case? I've seen it in the church. Why is it the case that we can say yes, but follow through with a no, and think that it's okay or it's permissible in God's house? 
Let's call it what it is. It's unfaithfulness. You've sinned against God by breaking your word. And you're dragging His people, His house, through the mud of your failure. Why do you think it's okay to break promises or to be unfaithful to your commitments in the church? Why do, you, why do work and family commitments take precedence or, or often are more serious? Why do you presume on the grace of God and the grace of His people? If you say you're going to do something or be somewhere, do it and be there. That's faithfulness. That's your yes being yes. Or your no being no. If you make a commitment, whether it's verbal or on a sign-up form, stick with it. Because that's what God's people do. Our yeses are yeses. Our noes are noes. A sincere heart produces sincere words that are followed by sincere actions. God expects nothing less from His people. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And when you fail, we all do at different times and in different places. Don't make excuses. Admit the failure that it is. Forgive me, I was unfaithful. Forgive me, I didn't follow through on my word. Forgive me, I failed you as a brother in Christ or a sister. I'm going to repent and I'm going to be there next time. Not just you know, admitting and confessing to other brothers and sisters, but go to God and repent of your unfaithfulness. Because this is a sin that grieves Him. We must speak honestly, speak truthfully, and speak simply. And then act according to your word faithfully. This is a mark of the true kingdom citizen, a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't want to leave you with just failure, failure, failure. I want to point you to one who is faithful, faithful, faithful. And that is the Lord Jesus. Why don't you open your Bibles to... You already opened your Bibles, okay. Why don't you turn to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. There's a little statement in this passage that is so precious and worth more weight than gold. 2 Timothy 2, and we will look at 11. Through 15. Start in verse 10, even better. 2 Timothy 2.10 says this, Paul to Timothy says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? God's people, the church. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Yes, they've been saved by grace. They've been renewed, regenerated, born again, transformed by the grace of God and the gospel. But they look forward to a more complete salvation when they will be received into glory and they will be made perfect and they will be truly resurrected to be with Christ for eternity. That's what Paul is pointing forward to here. 
He says in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. For if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And he goes on to exhort Timothy in his teaching role, rightly handling the word of truth. But did you see a little phrase in there that relates to what we've been talking about today? What is it? If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Every person here, if they're honest with themselves, would admit we're guilty. We've sinned before God. We've broken our word. We've told a lie. We've, we've broken promises. And you have to recognize that unlike the track athlete who can work every day to raise the bar, to jump higher and higher, and eventually meet the standard or the qualification height, we cannot do that with our salvation. We can't work harder and do better and be, ple- or be pleasing to God or to earn our way to heaven. We must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.48 So this whole sermon exposes our failure, but it doesn't leave us hopeless. God points us to Jesus Christ, the righteous fulfiller. If we believe in Jesus, trust in Him for salvation, repent of our sin, and trust in His righteousness, that we can be saved, forgiven, washed, cleansed, and made new. He is faithful even through our faithlessness. When we broke the law, Jesus fulfilled it. And so salvation can be found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ cleared the perfect bar of God's standard. And so if you're here today and you recognize I'm a sinner, I don't have a Savior, here's the only one, Jesus Christ. Trust in Him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you, to wash you, to make you new. And Christian, follow Him with your life. May your transformed heart produce sincere words that you follow through on. Don't act like the world that says they're going to do something and doesn't follow through. Don't act like the world that is built upon lies and falsehood. Act like Jesus Christ. Be the man and the woman that He calls you to be. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus with your whole life in all of your mouth. The words that you say. Let me close in prayer. Oh, Father, help us. Help us be with our mouths as we speak every day. There are so many words, unchecked words, that just come out. Maybe some of us are even thinking about hurtful words, lies spoken, even 
this morning, even yesterday, even this past week. Lord, you know that we've been exposed, that we've sinned in the way that we've spoken. We've lied, we've failed to keep our promises. Thank you for Jesus Christ who spoke words of grace, mercy, truth, and love. Jesus, who never once failed with the words that he spoke, but was obedient, righteous, innocent, and never sinned. And because of that, because of his work on the cross, because of his resurrection and him ascending to the right hand of you, God, King of kings, Lord of lords, he's the champion, the victorious Savior that we can trust and believe in, and He will cleanse us from our sins, save us, transform us, make us new, and because He's been raised, we will one day raise with Him and see Him in glory. I pray everyone in this room would trust Jesus as the only Savior, because He is, and that we who are followers of Christ, disciples, we would, that our words would match our hearts and that our actions would match our words. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be truthful. And it's only by your grace and your strength that we can take another step forward in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.